Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today I bring you another episode from the collaborators at the Popcorn Network. This time, it's focused on pulmonary emboli. Blood clots of all manners have been getting increased press recently with the COVID-19 pandemic because it appears to be a prothrombotic illness. Now, PEs do occur in children, but they are much more common in adults. And the goal of the Popcorn Network is to prepare pediatricians and other healthcare professionals that may be expected to take care of adults or at least adult problems in their hospitals during the ongoing pandemic response. And the excellent content in this episode is brought to you by David Shore, who is a fourth-year MedPeds resident at Penn State. Disclosure, I went to med school at Pitt, but our Pennsylvania allegiances did not get in the way of producing this content. So take it away, David. I'm David Shore. I'm a fourth-year MedPeds resident at the Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center. It's a real honor to be on the podcast. I work with the Popcorn Network which is the Pediatric Overflow Planning Contingency Response Network. It's a newly formed collaborative network with over 300 contributors who have come together to help prepare providers, pediatricians in particular, who may not have received specific training in internal medicine. Our group is made up of medical students, residents, advanced practice providers, and physicians from internal medicine, med-peds, family medicine, pediatrics, and other specialties. The primary goal of our network is to help support safe offloading and care for adults, possibly in pediatric-focused centers. We have working groups focused on health systems, operations, equity, education materials and resources, social media, and communications. And of course, an outcomes and metrics work group so we can improve each day. You can find us at popcornnetwork.org with only one N, or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the same handle. So let's get started. It's the start of your shift, and a 22-year-old woman has just walked into your emergency department. She's coming from about three hours away and was driving through town on the way to see her family. However, she's noted for at least the past hour, she's had this excruciating leg cramping that just continues to worsen. It's gotten so bad to the point that she couldn't help but stop and seek some medical attention. Now you're working with a new resident today, and they're asking what kinds of questions you want him to ask on his history and physical. Now, as we start to approach our history, it's important to take a step back and to try and remember some of the pathophysiology behind venous thromboembolism. This is because the pathophysiology itself directly translates into kinds of questions that we're asking in our history. So first, we have Verkal's triad, which is the basics of all venous thromboembolism with stasis, vascular injury, and thrombophilia. This translates in a pretty straightforward manner into our history questions. First, when we're trying to think of stasis, it's things like recent unmobilization due to a broken limb. This is particularly true in orthopedic surgery or recent travel. Vascular injury is also important when we're talking about things like a recent surgery. Finally, we think of thrombophilia, and we can kind of break thrombophilia up into two main parts. First, we have genetic and familial predisposition, so asking about a family history of venous thromboembolism, and then we have more of an acquired with thrombophilia, and this is with things like hormone therapy, most commonly oral contraceptives, as well as malignancy and cigarette use. Now, with Verkel's triad out of the way and how it directly discusses some of the basics of our history, we can move into some of the more detailed practical questions, and these are fairly straightforward. We're looking for things like leg pain, unilateral leg swelling, color and temperature changes of the affected limb, 
In some cases, we're also looking for syncope. And this is coming out of an initial study done in Italy looking at how many patients presenting with syncope were later found to have segmental and subsegmental pulmonary emboli. There are also some other exam features that we're trying to find or not find. For example, we're trying to find no signs of fracture, agamosis, cellulitis. In our history, we're trying to look for recent trauma. These sorts of things are helping us look towards other possible differential diagnoses, which again is going to be directly important when we're talking about our risk stratification. Next, when we're trying to talk about not just deep vein thromboses, but also pulmonary embolism, we're talking about a chest pain history. Now, we're all familiar with the chest pain history. However, in adults and unlike kids, we tend to find more of a cardiac chest pain and less chest wall pain. This relates in things of the following nature. We discuss things like a pleuritic chest pain, hemoptysis, and shortness of breath. This is further explored on an exam where, in addition to checking for pulses, edema, and the circumference of the affected limb, we're looking for signs of potential right heart strain, including a pronounced S2 paradoxical splitting, or if you place your hand on the chest, even a right ventricular heave. So now that we've talked about some of the aspects of the history and physical that we're trying to key on, let's return to our patient. Now, her vitals are stable besides for a tachycardia of 110. She's saturating 94% on room air, both of which of these things are relatively good benign findings. Her chest and cardiovascular exam are both fairly unremarkable without any of the signs of right ventricular heart strain that we discussed earlier. She has right leg swelling that is 3 centimeters greater in the mid-leg with some distal pitting, but uh, intact pulses, no palpable venous cords, and no discoloration of the affected limbs, loss of temperature, sensation, and a negative Holman sign. The resident asks then what tests you would want them to order. Now, before we jump in and start talking about which of these tests we should use, we really need to talk about what the pretest probability that our patient has venothromboembolism. It'd be really exciting to dive right in and talk about the subtleties between D-dimer, ultrasound, and CT angiograms, even VQ scans. However, without knowing how likely it is that this patient has a venothromboembolism, we really can't choose what the appropriate test. Now, when we're breaking down our pretest probability for venothromboembolism, we've got really three main buckets that we're trying to talk about here. We've got our low probability, our intermediate probability, and then, of course, our high probability. When we're talking about how to break down venothromboembolism into these big buckets, we use various risk stratification criteria, and the most popular of which is the Wells criteria. Now, there's a different Wells criteria for deep vein thrombosis than there is pulmonary embolism, but they're very similar. They basically take your history and your physical exam findings and incorporate into this risk schema. We're talking about things for deep vein thrombosis, like malignancy being bedridden recently for more than three days in the past 12 weeks, recent calf swelling, entire leg swollen, etc. And we're talking about Wells criteria for pulmonary embolism. We have clinical signs and symptoms of a DVT, which is one specific thing. And then we also have tachycardia greater than 100, recent DVT or PE, hemoptysis or malignancy with treatment in the last six months or on palliative care. With this, we can really start to determine which of our tests are most likely to be helpful. Now let's say you've calculated your pretest probability with whatever test that you're using at the time, and you're finding that you're in the low category. This is a perfect time to consider a D-dimer. D-dimer is an excellent test 
for very specific situations. It's very sensitive, but horribly specific, meaning if you have a positive D-dimer, you aren't entirely sure where it's coming from. Elevations can be seen with age, elevations can be seen with any pro-inflammatory state. But if it's negative, it's very unlikely to be venal thromboembolism, and you can probably start your work, stop your workup right there. You can approach your low and intermediate pretest probability buckets in the same way. You can choose to get a D-dimer, and if it's negative, you're great. You can stop right there. But if for whatever reason it's elevated or, God forbid, indeterminate, you're kind of stuck, and you're almost obligated to move on to the next stage of testing. This is always including an imaging test of some choice. We're going to start by talking about deep vein thromboses. This typically involves duplex of the affected extremity. Sometimes we do both legs, and there is a subtlety between doing just a portion of the leg or the whole leg ultrasound, but that's something for another discussion. When we're talking about acute pulmonary embolism, the test of choice is a CT angiogram. Now, for those of your patients who can't get the CT angiogram, there are some, are some other options that you can consider. They're not great, however. The one that we're mostly talking about is a ventilation or VQ perfusion study. The probability with these is that they're very difficult to interpret. If the patient has any underlying problems with ventilation, you're most likely to get an indeterminate reading, and then you're stuck not knowing exactly what to do. This is all, by the way, in the context of acute pulmonary embolism. We're not beginning to discuss the context of chronothromboembolic disease, in which VQ scans have actually an increased utility. Now, just like there was some subtlety in the imaging test of choice for the chest, there is some subtlety to how you're going to evaluate your affected limb with a duplex ultrasound. This really exists in two forms. You can either do a proximal leg ultrasound, or you can do a whole leg ultrasound. There isn't significant differences necessarily between the two, except you cannot use a proximal leg ultrasound to rule out deep vein thrombosis in someone who has intermediate or high pretest probability. In these cases, it's probably better to just skip it and go straight to the whole leg ultrasound. Now that we've covered some of the subtleties and how we choose to diagnose venothromboembolism, how about we turn to our case? So we are discussing our young woman who is driving through the state. You determine that our patient has a high risk pretest probability for pulmonary embolism and plan to order a CT angiography to check that your diagnosis is correct. And lo and behold, she does have an acute pulmonary embolism, there is no signs of heart strain, and you're trying to decide your next steps for disposition. She says she wants to go home, but you're uncertain if that's the best move for her. The resident that you're working with asks any orders that you want right now and whether or not she needs to be admitted. Now, this very neatly brings us to one of the last parts of the discussion that we're going to have today, and that's, and now that we've diagnosed venothromboembolism, how do we appropriately treat it? Now, the landscape of treatment of venothromboembolism has truly exploded in the past 10 years. Right now, we have three main categories of pharmacologic agents that we are going to discuss. First, we've got our vitamin K antagonists. This would be the classic warfarin. Next, we've got our heparin products. And finally, we've got direct oral anticoagulants, also known as DOACs for short. So we're going to start breaking down these various classes of therapeutics with the vitamin K antagonists. Now, this is the tried and true warfarin. It's safe, it's effective, and it's been around for ages, and we know it works really well. Those are its really significant benefits. One of the other benefits that we don't tend to discuss a lot of the time is that it's effective in almost all forms of venothromboembolism. There are patients who have something a rare disease called antiphospholipid syndrome, which we've learned in medical school but isn't seen entirely commonly in the adult population. These patients can only have warfarin and truly have safe, effective anticoagulation. Now, there are some significant downsides that we haven't yet discussed. 
the most notable of one is patients who are going to be started on warfarin require what we call bridging therapy. This is due to a relative deficiency of protein CNS while you're starting warfarin, which can increase thrombophilia, which is exactly what we don't want to happen right now. This means that they have to be on your therapeutic heparin product of choice, and then you have to continue the heparin product until you have at least 48 hours of therapeutic INR levels. And we're shooting for an INR between 2 and 3. And this can take time. It's not insubstantial. This leads us to perhaps the biggest downsides of vitamin K antagonists, frequent monitoring. It can be difficult at times to maintain therapeutic drug levels, and this is further affected by drug-drug interactions, which are not insubstantial, and dietary changes. Now, marching onward in our discussion of pharmacologic agents, the next class we have are your heparin products. These perhaps are some of my favorite, and especially in a lot of different situations. We have two different kinds that we readily discuss. We have enoxaparin and we have heparin. Now, enoxaparin being a part of the low molecular weight heparin class, they are extremely beneficial in that they are immediately therapeutic, generally dosed at a one milligram per kilogram. Now, I urge you to discuss with your pharmacist if you're approaching BMIs greater than 40, where dosing can start to change. Now, some of the downsides to this drug, however, is you're going to be having to do injections in your belly twice a day, and it can be quite painful. It's not the most comfortable thing to do. And the second one that's, I think, often overlooked is low molecular weight heparin is not cheap. It's pretty costly. That being said, one of the best things that we need to consider is that it's considered first line in malignancy. Although, as when we go down to the direct oral co coagulants below, we'll discuss how this may be changing. Now, the second heparin product in this category is heparin. Now, this one I'm not a particular fan of. The frustration with this is if you're considering someone who could otherwise go home, meaning that once you've diagnosed their pulmonary embolism, you decide that they have relatively low-risk pulmonary embolism, you can't send someone home if you're going to be putting them on a heparin drip, fairly obviously. One of the more subtle things that's difficult with the use of this drug is that it can be difficult to get therapeutic drug monitoring levels. Unlike low molecular weight heparin, where it's considered immediately at therapeutic levels, Heparin drips take time. They take boluses, and it can be difficult to truly well manage. One of the benefits, though, is it's easy to start, easy to stop, and readily reversible if a patient has to have surgery or is having a bleeding complication. It's also, unlike low molecular weight heparin, safe in renal failure. Finally, we're going to briefly touch on the direct oral coagulants. Now, if I can have a patient who's going to go home, these are what I prefer to use. We've got things like rivaroxaban, dabigatran, and apixaban. The problem with these are they're becoming more readily available, but they're still very expensive. You also have to understand that there are limitations in terms of the age of the patient, oftentimes the BMI of the patient, and renal failure and hepatic failure. You can't use every drug in every situation. Now, originally, these weren't even considered first-line in patients with malignancy. However, as I was alluding to earlier, there have been some non-inferiority studies coming out in the context of rivaroxaban and a few others showing that this may no longer be the case. Finally, let's talk the last step in the emergency department, disposition. One of the things we have to consider is medic medication reconciliation as we're trying to potentially send patients out the door, or even if they're going to be admitted. And one thing that's mo very relevant in this patient is we would have to discontinue things that are predisposing her risk to ver further thrombophilia, most notably oral contraceptivations. This would also be a great time if someone was smoking to tell them to stop smoking. Now, when you're trying to decide if this patient needs to be admitted, it really depends on exactly what we're talking about. Deep vein thromboses, generally you don't have to be considering admission. 
Now, if there's concern for pulmonary embolism, or if you have diagnosed a pulmonary embolism, that's where things change. There's some evidence showing that patients can have what we describe as a high-risk pulmonary embolism. This is most commonly described, for example, as a massive PE. But then we also have intermediate pulmonary emboli and low-risk pulmonary emboli. The question is, what is your patient? Now, again, there's lots of different risk stratification scores out there, and what we tend to use is the PE severity index. Briefly, this is used to identify which patients are more likely to have complications. It looks at things like the cause, for example, malignancy, and whether they're having signs that may indicate uh, right heart strain, like tachycardia. Now, one last final point before I sign off, Brad. And again, thank you. It's been lovely being able to talk about this with you. But we need to talk about, could this diagnosis be life-threatening? And there are really three life-threatening manifestations that's, that we've alluded to throughout the course of this talk. One we just briefly talked about, and that was the context of submassive and massive pulmonary emboli. Massive pulmonary emboli are fairly easy to diagnosis, and this is in the context of someone who's having significant of right heart strain to cause hemodynamic instability, and the treatment for these things are TPA. Now, there are specific indications and contraindications to TPA, so I urge you to discuss this with your relevant pulmonologist, CT surgery, and interventional radiology, as all three specialties have significant variations on management. Now, when we're trying to differentiate between massive and massive pulmonary embolism, this is where we talk about the context that there is right heart strain, but whether or not there is hemodynamic compromise in the form of shock. This can be sometimes very subtle, again, Please involve your specialists early on when we're trying to discuss this, but when we're specifically looking for right heart strain, there are various modalities that you can consider while you're getting them on the horn. This includes CT chest, transthoracic echocardiography, and lab work with a troponin and BMP, both of which have been shown at various cutoff levels to be sensitive and specific for right heart strain. Just like pulmonary embolism can have life-threatening manifestations in the context of the massive PE, deep vein thromboses can also be exceedingly threatening, in this context, limb-threatening. We're discussing in this context the acute limb. If you were to have such a large clot, you can have resultant venous ischemia. This is otherwise known as phygmasia cerulea dolens, which I'm sure I've mispronounced. This literally translates to painful blue inflammation, and it's from such a large clot burden in your affected limb that you're starting to have a critical limb ischemia. This is when you want to be discussing something with your vascular surgery team prior to starting anticoagulation. Having talked about disposition and potentially life and limb-threatening manifestations of venothromboembolism, let's return back to our patient. She's been doing well. She hasn't been demonstrating any significant tachycardia or hypoxemia, and you find that she actually has a low-risk PESE or PESE score, and you determine that she can be sent home. You start your direct oral coagulant of choice, and you arrange for follow-up with her PCP in a few days to a week. That's it for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Thank you very much, David. I learned quite a bit about pulmonary emboli from working on this episode with you. If you want to check out more regarding the Popcorn Network, go to their website, popcornnetwork.org, and Popcorn Network has one N in the URL. You can also check out pemblog.com, some website that some guy made that has lots of stuff about pediatric emergency medicine. Follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets and check out my Facebook page. I'd be very appreciative if you could leave a review or a comment on the blog. I'd really appreciate the feedback. Until next time, this has been Brad Soboleski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast.